You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 67 of the Surf Simply podcast. My name is Harry Knight, and I'm here with Will Forster. Hello, everybody. And we have just finished doing a recording with James Otter from Otter Surfboards. James is kind of here with us in spirit animal form with his wooden surfboard that he sent over to us. We we mentioned in the interview we've got a beautiful wooden surfboard, which as it happens is propped up behind our heads as we're recording this little introduction. Um, I'm going to put, I'll put a photo of that and a whole bunch of other little bits and pieces into the show notes. So if you want to go and check those, go to surfsimply.com slash podcast. We had a really good conversation, and I think it's interesting enough that we're just going to throw it out as an episode all by itself. So none of the rest of the team are here. We're not going to do any any what-to-watches or anything like that at the end of the interview, but I hope that you guys will enjoy it. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast James Otter. Uh, James is the founder and the owner of Otter Surfboards in the UK. They make beautiful hollow wooden surfboards. Last time I was in the UK, I was really lucky. I got to go and hang out with James and uh, play around with some woodwork and made myself a little hand plane. And they very generously lent us a a wooden demo board that we've brought back out here to Costa Rica and some of the guys have been playing around with. Uh, But James, welcome to the show. Thank you. Cheers, Harry. Nice to speak to you. So James, just for for listeners that that don't know you, give us a, a, a little background. Who are you? Where are you from? Yeah, so I um, grew up kind of in the middle of the UK, um, but always holidayed down in the southwest and enjoyed being in and around the ocean. Fell in love with it, as a lot of, a lot of youngsters do, and, and headed this way. Um, alongside that, I loved making things out of wood, always did, always had a bit of an obsession with, like, on dog walks as a kid, I'd pick up sticks and plead with mum that I'd be able to take the ten home with me, because I just, there was something about wood I had a connection to that I've never really got to the bottom of, but it's uh, it's kind of ended up proliferating the whole of my life, so... Um, it, uh, yeah, so I then kind of uh, studied designing and making, um, followed art and design through school and went on to university to, to study in the world of designing and making, which was leading into furniture making. Um, and then, and it was all based around working with wood. Um, and I then decided to have a go at making a surfboard. I was well into my surfing as well fairly fed up with how foam boards would would fall apart relatively quickly um didn't have much of a lifespan and thought that there was an opportunity to make something out of wood that would just last longer and being someone who's interested in wood and the, the health of our, our planet and the woodlands around us it was kind of like there's an opportunity to to really dig deep and understand where the wood's grown how how it's all how the land is all managed and then take that wood, see it felled, which is a pretty heart-stopping moment, and take that th- right the way through to a product that you designed to, to last a lifetime. So, um, yeah, that's kind of brought me to where I am. As a, as a business, um, Otter Surfboard started in 2010, officially, um, but I was making boards for a couple of years before that, um, just to figure it all out, because there's an awful lot of, of R&D needed. Um, someone had to do the surfing, but also with just the making, um, there's so many elements to to what we do, the way that we make them with the skin-on frame technique that there was a, a good amount of trial and error just to work out the, the best and, and most efficient use of timber, the best way to use the different timbers in, in with their, their kind of structural properties, and then, um, yeah, produce a, a surfboard that I was happy with. Just a question about that first board you perhaps made. Was it always the, the sort of the skeletal 
timber frame that you you, you know from the beginning yeah so um i kind of look i look i started off by looking at what timbers were local to us here um so ones that would lend themselves to surfboard manufacture and then it was or surfboard making really it's not really manufacturing um and then work out the best application of that and it seemed that um because we had cedar fairly readily available and in the small world of, of wooden surfboards the the typical technique was to use a skin on frame which kind of harks back to when tom blake started out making hollow boards mm-hmm. and it's a development of that basically so yeah they were always hollow i, I toyed with like chambered and stuff but they, they to me it always seems so wasteful of timber mm-hmm. um like i can tell you like our our surfboards, the amount of timber that goes into them is a piece of wood, the equivalent length of a surfboard, but six inches square. So it's it's not like the amount of wood anywhere near that you'd use if you were chambering. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was part of the thing for me. For listeners that haven't seen, I'll, I'll put some photographs into our show notes. You can see those uh, at uh, surfsimply.com slash podcast. But but James, for for listeners that maybe haven't seen them that are sitting in their car right now, talk to us. What what is this skin on frame construction that you guys use to to build the wooden boards? Yeah, so the the skin on frames is essentially um, we we buy the the timber in in planks. Um, we mill those to make skins. So we slice them and then glue them edge on edge together to make a skin. We have one of those that's on the bottom. Then we glue a plywood structure, which is essentially a bit like a skeleton. So if you imagine like a fish skeleton or something, glued down onto the board, onto that skin. And then there's thin, thin strips that we, we process that go from the nose to the tail to build the rails up to give us the volume element of the board. And then there's another skin that goes on the top of the board, on the deck. Um, so that kind of creates this complete blank that we then shape back. Um, to the to the desired shape that we want and so how close that 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 blank that you end up with presumably the rail the rails are pretty kind of square and chunky but what sort of what sort of thickness of wood are you are you looking at how much stuff how much are you then going to have to shave away to to, yeah. to end up with a finished surfboard yeah so with the the way that we make them we use a, a technique on the rails called bead and cove where all of the strips all nest in each other as they go up around the rail so that allows us in the design stage to bring the, the framework, the ribs we call them, um, pretty close to the, to the shape that we want at the end. We just reduce them down by four millimeters. The strips we put on the outside are six millimeters thick. So once we've glued everything on, we've got about two to three millimeters to play with around the whole board. So it's not a lot. Um, so once we've made the blank, we're kind of 90% there. It's a lot of detail work, especially at the nose and tail. So we put solid wood through the nose and tail so we've got a bit more to play with because that's where a lot of the detail of the shape comes in and the rails are quite happily just following the the ribs as they as they change down the length of the board how long did it take you to get it to where you can build a board with i mean that's that's two mil of tolerance that you're building to i mean yeah. that's that's pretty impressive i'm assuming the first board wasn't built at a two mil <laughs> two millimeter tolerance realistically it, it kind of was because I knew how thick I wanted that skin to be because any thicker in it becomes quite heavy. Like It gets heavier, ultimately. The more wood you put in, the heavier it gets. So it was a case of trying to find that sweet spot of how much wood you need for the strength, but then keeping it enough out that you've still got it fairly lightweight. And um, 
and so yeah the first ones there there was a bit of extra timber in there but mainly on the underside of the rails so there was the ability to to get into the shaping more on the underside obviously that's kind of the bit of the circle that has more interaction with the water it's a bit more critical and the bit you might want to to change a little bit more as we go along the board and as we're shaping but ultimately the the tolerances have always have always been pretty close um all that we notice is that um, the frames may need tweaking to give us our clean clean lines that we want along the outlines and, and, and those rails. So You said it took a, a few boards to, to figure it out. Yeah. What would you say was the ratio there of, of figuring out how to turn your joinery skills into surfboard building and how much of it was learning how to create a good surfboard, you know, just, just shaping skills, learning to shape a, a good functional rail and a, and a, and a good rocker profile? Yeah, so for, you never stop learning, but obviously those those first few stumbles are pretty big learning <laughs> opportunities. So um, it probably took about a dozen boards to refine the process of of how best to make them and, and achieve a, a shape close to what I had in my mind's eye. Um, and and like like that first board, I built one rail differently to the other to just test and just see what worked. Um, so yeah, over the next dozen or so, I got to the point where I was like, right, these are these are these are working pretty well i can i can a run the courses that you know the process lent itself to us teaching people how to make them but also i was happy to kind of put them into the world and and be judged on them ultimately which is what you do as a maker you have to be happy enough that people will judge you on them um and then like you say the the learning of actually how what creates a good surfboard was was partly just going and getting my hands on any surfboard i could and and understanding that form and shape and the way that behaves with water and ultimately that that's that learning never stops like i'm i'm always i'm I'm obsessed probably in a similar level to to you are in terms of what makes surfboards work and how they how they interact with the water and and what's interesting from our point of view is as as you know the wooden boards they feel different under your arm they feel different in the water so actually whilst we can borrow from foam like the the developments happen within the foam world actually what's working best for our wooden boards is something that we're still you know we're still trying to learn from and get the feedback from so it's it's nice though when you get one that 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 people ultimately people just smile when they're riding them and that's so cool to to get that that interaction yeah absolutely and and so how would you say now that you've kind of refined this process down and you've got as you say you, you you've got boards that you're you're pretty happy for people to 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 judge you on how yeah. would you then describe the difference if someone was to take their their, their standard foam board and build something out of wood? Mm. How's the board going to feel different? Yeah, so they they finish. Um, the the most immediate thing is they finish about thirty percent heavier than a foam equivalent. Um, so you and that oddly is much more noticeable on land than when you're in the sea. But what that actually translates to is more momentum and 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 speed without having to generate the speed yourself. Um, so they. It ends up just being like they are. They are different. You almost you just have to accept that they're different. Um, albeit, like I started with a bit of an obsession of trying to replicate foam boards and trying to bring that weight down. And okay, how do I? You know that that was where I started. And they got to a point where I was like, do you know what? They're just wooden surf, but they're they're their own thing. They need to. I need to understand the benefits that come along with those things that I originally saw as negatives. Um, and actually, with that momentum and glide that you get from them, what shapes? work well with that which is why we've kind of settled towards the the mid-length single fins the smaller twin fins and then the the logs um which is kind of the world we feel like we sit best in 
Um, and in, it's really interesting. I don't know how, how you guys find it with, with the varying abilities of, of surfers that you have, but actually um, an extra bit of glider momentum can really, really help people because they're, because they're just they, they've got the ability to get a longer wave more easily without without that focus on trying to generate speed, which is quite yeah, just quite interesting to to see how it can almost smooth people's surfing out. Um, just kind of the, you you can't twitch about and make small micro adjustments very easily because of that inertia. So you have to learn to find the right line more easily. Um, yeah, which is quite interesting. It's something that I, I'm still figuring out myself. So. Actually, that, that was a question I wanted to ask you, because when I was at the workshop in uh, October, I think it was, you had, there was a board that was finished, the shaping was finished, but it hadn't been glassed. And mm. I was interested because, so lifting that board up, that didn't feel particularly heavy. Yeah. But then, as you say, you know, the finished boards do carry quite a bit of weight so are they are they glassed yeah. heavier than a standard board or is it is that just actually fiberglass is pretty heavy and it, and if you go from a, a shaped foam blank and a shaped wooden blank you're adding the same amount of weight in fiberglass it's just that the shaped wooden blank although it feels light under the arm actually is significantly heavier than the shaped foam blank would have been yeah it um more so like we use a single layer of four ounce glass um so it's less resin and fiberglass than a typical foam board would have so yeah the compa- the, the the change is less in our boards than it is in foam boards um, like a typical foam board would have uh, may- maybe like a like a, if you're looking at a short board it'd have like a layer of six and four on the top and maybe a layer of six on the bottom whereas we're just one layer of four top and bottom um, and it because for us it's that blank that you you speak of is is inherently strong itself so for us it's more a case of sealing it up um, we would go for a lighter glass, but you just can't get the quality of woven glass much thinner than four ounce. Um, so yeah, we'd rather have something that's that's strong and lasts a long time than that obsession, like I say, with trying to get that weight down. You said the the glass is there to seal the board up. So it, mm. how watertight is the board without the glass job? Yeah, so because they're made, I'm trying to think now. So they're made of like 30 pieces of wood all joined together maybe on the outside right. maybe more so you think the amount the, the 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 length and the distance of joins and the opportunity for some of them to twist and, and crack and just reveal little small gaps that would be an issue if you were to say oil it um which is a, a, obviously an option for finishing wood um it wouldn't do the job of sealing it and plugging all those little holes and those tiny little little gaps in the in the timber um because we've that's the thing we've kind of looked at okay so you know if we if we oil them they're they're a far more in theory environmental surfboard but if they don't last then what the hell's the point in that mm-hmm. um it becomes you know it, it immediately undoes all the hard work you've done in, in trying to make them more sustainable so um and then there's the the boat varnishing way if you look at you know the wooden boat world they're all finished with varnishes but that requires an awful lot of upkeep um it's a finish that surfers aren't used to and wouldn't really know what to do with um so for us it was a case of okay let, let's try and find the best um resins that are out there and, and work with that process that surfers are used to ultimately um and it's it's a finish people are are expecting to have on a surfboard what is your model range like so for example if someone's coming to build a board with you mm. do they come with a not necessarily a preference because i'm sure they do but but what's the decision as far as what are they going to design 
Yeah, so we kind of, we've got about 12 shapes, I think, at the minute in our range, mm -hmm. which go from like a little five, six mini Simmons through a couple of twin fins, through some single fin mid-lengths up to long boards. Um, and typically people will come to us and they'll have a couple of them that they're thinking about and it's a, just a conversation that then opens up as to what the what their surfing standard is um it's probably a conversation you guys have all the time but um because people are probably asking about boards but you know what they're surfing is what waves they likely to be surfing how often are they surfing how how heavy are they as a person as well mm -hmm. um and it's kind of trying to tie all of those things together to work out which which one's likely to be best for them. Yeah. Um, and then every now and then there's someone who'll come to us and go, no, this is this is the board I'd like to have in wood. Like we had we had a chap a number of years ago, and it, it was it was it was almost a little bit frustrating because it sat like we've got a seven four and a six ten um, that are fairly similar in in their template. Um, one the seven four is a lot thicker, but fairly similar in the template. And he went, I've got this board at home, and I want to replicate that. And it, it literally sat like bang in the middle of the two. And we were like, it's not, it's not, you. It, it, for us, it wasn't really unique enough, but we were kind of like, well, okay, if that's what you want, then we'll do that. Um, and then we've had so many people over the years go, I'm arming and ahhing about the 610 or the 74 that we've gone, there is a 72 <laughs> that sits in the middle. <laughs> and, and about half a dozen people have gone for that. Um, and so we've en we ended up adding it, adding it to our range last year because we were like, do you know what, that it, it's becoming too too obvious a question that mm -hmm. we can't, you know, uh, answer it up front. And um, so yeah, so the range is constantly developing, and we kind of we tour different projects that we work on, and 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 look to kind of plug gaps. But ultimately, it's it's they they tend to revolve around helping people catch waves and enjoy time in the ocean. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not like. Oh, I'm going to go and shred some gnarly barrels. They're not. They're not typically that kind of a board. Um, it's just about getting people to to get in the sea and and make the most of the conditions that. I mean, the majority of them end up in the UK, so the mm -hmm. conditions that are around us. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you'd probably rather not say, but have you had boards through the development stage? Have you had boards that just really didn't work? Uh, there's been a couple, uh, <laughs> mainly. Mainly through maker error, though, um, <laughs> and then surfer error. So, yeah, I wouldn't, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, th it's just one of those. I think there's been the figuring out the process of the making has probably brought more boards to a point where I'm not happy with them yeah. than actually um, the initial kind of design stage, as it were. Um, and also, like I say, to start with, I was obsessed with trying to replicate the, the short boards that I was riding, and that just wasn't. You know, I, they're still in the shed at home. The ones that were that I did at that point, because I just I just don't surf them, um, and they're not they're not really good enough to sell or anything. So they kind of, um, for me, they're they're my little closet of learning. And and so would would you say that the wooden boards, like you said, they 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 carry that momentum and that inertia, and they they produce that that nice sort of gliding, flowing surfing, or, or they facilitate that nice gliding flowing surfing i'm sure you've had people come to you wanting to shape shortboards do you tend to try to steer them away from that for that reason that it that it's not really a construction that lends itself to aggressive shortboard surfing yeah it's yeah it's, it's an interesting one Odd, oddly uh, i think maybe early on we had that conversation a lot but really not so much anymore um yeah, we we don't. Uh, yeah, we don't have that conversation. It's interesting because it makes me think that maybe our messaging is quite good in terms of when people come to us, they are aware that 
replicating shortfalls isn't what we're about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and m- maybe and maybe it's um, my own uh, interpretation of it, but typically people who shortboard aren't going to spend the money that it takes to get one of our boards. Um, we yeah, like, it, even like when we when we work with some of the professional surfers that we do projects with they'll kind of come to us and they'll go, well, this is what I normally ride, but I can appreciate these are different. So actually, how do, what, what, what board is going to be best for this type of wave? And it's, it's a different type of board to what they're used to riding. Um, and most of them are open-minded and happy to, happy to do that. Um, and in, in fact, when we've worked, like some of them we work with there, you know, you can kind of see why they're professional surfers because they're really tenacious and want to understand what surfboards, what's going on with surfboards. So actually, they'll, in, they'll kind of relish the challenge um, as much as they will kind of see the differences. Um, yeah, but I'm trying to think now. Like, I, I can't remember the last time someone actually came to us and said, well, I want to replicate a shortboard. Like, it doesn't typically happen. We have a, we have a more kind of a couple of more performance-orientated shapes in our range, um, which we would then lean people towards. But they're, again, they're, they're like they're like a 6'4". You know the the template's still fairly full, but it's a little bit more shortboard, like with a you know with a rounded tail. Um, that's probably one of our more performance orientated shapes, but but again, it's it's big enough that it's different. It's not it's not a shortboard, you know. And then we've got a six eight that's more like a step up board, so it's got a bit more volume. It's more drawn out, um, and that's been quite popular with people who 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 want to just kind of take on bigger waves but have that extra bit of momentum to get into them and stuff. I know you, uh, I think I'm right in saying you, you shaped a big wave gun a couple of years back that yeah. has tackled a few of the heavier spots around the UK. Um, what what yeah. are some of the more memorable projects that, that you've taken on? Yeah, so, um, yeah, there's uh, a few for various reasons, really. Like, um, I guess the, the first big one that we did was actually working with a, with a local national trust garden where we they they had a storm damaged tree that came down and wanted to use the timber in a way and the gardener had kind of seen me at one of their shows and um and he kind of proposed okay would you like some of this wood so we got through into the trust where they and they used to um have a load of sponsored surfers um as part of their kind of coastline campaign that they had um so it gave us as as like a a, a very young company gave us access to these surfers um so we were able to make this board out of the National Trust timber and get it under their feet. Um, and one of them was, was Ben Skinner, um, and that kind of started this relationship with him. Um, a lot of your listeners might not be from the UK and know who Ben Skinner is. So he's um, kind of 11-time European longboard champ. Um, I think he was kind of, he was third in the world at one of the worlds recently. Um, he's, yeah, he's an incredibly talented surfer who happens to come from, from local to us here. Um, so he's a great person to get feedback off of. And he's the one I said about, you know, how tenacious he was. Because this board, the timber wasn't really ideal for surfboards either. So it was, it was heavier even than the boards that we that we typically make. So, But to see what he was then able to do with it, because he's more comfortable on kind of longboards and stuff. He was, it was, a, we made a 610 single fin and he was just able to kind of, yeah, really put it through its paces and try and figure it out, which was really fascinating. That then led on to the, the project we did with the big wave gun where, where he was kind of, taking it out into some pretty challenging surf. Um, he himself, you know, he is definitely not claiming to ever be a, a big wave surfer. Um, and in fact, I kind of spoke to him on a personal level about um, he definitely has a limit in, in where he's comfortable, which was which was really fascinating to understand. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, so he just, it, it, that was a project with Surfers Against Sewage, which is a charity in the UK that's all about kind of um, 
cleaning up the oceans um, and and kind of fighting the good fight against plastics and everything. Um, and um, they wanted to kind of shine a light on the alternatives that are out there in the surf world. They were like, look, you don't have to go and buy, you know, your, um, I'm not going to name any names, but you don't have to just go and buy an off-the-shelf, you know, white polyurethane surfboard that's going to last two years and then you get another one. Um, they wanted to show that they last and that they can be built for that kind of an environment as well. So it was a re- for us, it was a really great opportunity to test what the boards could do. And how did it do? Yeah, it survived, I think is the main thing. <laughs> um, and so did Ben, which is good. Um, yeah, no, it was, it, he, he really loved it. Um, it, it was almost because we were kind of waiting, we were waiting for a long time for the right kind of swell to, to show. We wanted it to be clean enough you know ben knew that in his mind's eye the the break we were surfing he was surfing was um was off of a headland in newquay called the cribber which in in the southwest of the uk is kind of one of the bigger wave spots um and uh and he he knew there'd be days where it, when it could be big and perfect but the the chance of those those the swell and wind combining to that point is 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 so slim but he managed to get out on one of the days where it was pretty chunky like i would have been pretty scared heading out there um luckily i mean Unfortunately, I was in Norfolk at the time, um, <laughs> and yeah, he 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 really loved it. Like he kind of, he I think it's just that mindset he has of of, of trying to overcome things um, and trying to understand them was is just really beneficial. So yeah, then the, then the feedback that we get is you know is really helpful. Um, but ultimately, the the board probably could have been taken into waves twice the size quite happily um, because of the design of it and stuff. Um, and then yeah, we've we've worked with kind of other other surfers as well who are who are putting them into more challenging places as well. I, like we don't on a on a regular basis go and surf overhead barrels, but some people do, um, and it's, so it's really interesting to to get them in those situations and and put them through their paces. I like there's a there's a lad locally who who loves taking on big waves, um, and he's used one of our seven ten kind of single fin um, kind of harking back to like the sunset single fins of the seventies um, kind of a template, and he's he's paddled that into some some pretty serious waves and, and, and absolutely loves it because um, because he just loves the, the the paddling speed and the 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 way that that momentum like if you if you're in choppy season you've got a lot of a lot of wind and, and other elements to to combat which often comes when you have bigger waves um, he just loved the fact that it'll cut through chop it'll glide it'll get that get you down the wave and, and out and along the wave face um, better than a, than a foam board might so that's just quite fascinating to see. As you've said, one of the really important things is the the lifespan of these boards. So they've obviously got that fiberglass around the outside, but you, you know you were saying they're a lot stronger. Where, hmm. What does the the sort of ding repair process look like for these boards? And and for all their strengths, like what what are some of the weaknesses? I mean, I know that we've we've got to be very careful at the moment with with putting the the bung back in and out as we're taking the board from sort of 30 35 degrees centigrade and 80 percent humidity into the air-conditioned office where where the board's being stored and things like that so what are some of the weaknesses and what are some of the strengths of the of the construction yes so um so i'll I'll tackle the the kind of the ding repair element first um with that um outer outer kind of fiberglass shell that's that's got the epoxy resin in it they the a ding repair that breaks through the glass um is pretty typical of any of any fiberglass repair using epoxy if you happen to break into the wood um you need to just make sure that the wood hasn't taken on too much water and make sure it's dried out before you then continue with the repair typically if we we say if the wood's damaged we'd really like to get our hands back on the board so we can make sure the structure of it um is still is still good and then repair it for you and then 
the only other thing that then could happen is like is puncturing it to the point you get right the way through the wood and in which case um we've kind of had boards had board, there's only been a couple and mostly mine <laughs> that, that, that i've then had to um yeah we kind of essentially have to deconstruct a part of the board and, and rebuild it it's really important that, that we're able to repair them um and and get them get them up and running again so yeah, that that's always always um, a thought of ours. We are yet to have one snap like you'd expect a typical surfboard. Um, that's a pretty big problem that does tend tend to happen with the, with with typical foam boards. So yeah, and we we have customers that have had boards for kind of now seven or eight years or so, and they're still using them regularly. Um, I've still got that that very first surfboard that I made. I've still got. I rode it when I first made it. I rode it for about three years nonstop. That was my one surfboard that I used. And that's yeah, that's ten years old, and and we can take the wax off it, and it's as it was when I made it. So that's you know that's really encouraging to see that happening. Um, you don't get those kind of those classic pressure dings that you get with foam boards, um, and the kind of the slow deterioration into uselessness. So w- what is the typical ding? What do, do, are people sticking arms and legs through the boards, or are they hitting rocks? What's causing yeah, what's causing the damage? Yeah, the, the damage is is um, is probably broken leashes and rocks. Basically, the, those two combining is is the main the main thing. Um, I haven't had anyone put their knees or hands or anything through them. Um, they're pretty hard. Like you you realize when you when you first fall off on one and happen to come into contact with it, how soft a foam board really <laughs> is. Um, yeah, so you do become quite conscious actually of of when you bail off the surfboard getting away from it and covering your head you know the whole arm helmet you guys probably teach in terms of when when you come off off a surfboard that's you know fundamental and also safety in the water like if it's busy i'll paddle off and and find a peak to myself i i i i don't like the thought of the consequences that might be as a result of the fact that they're just heavier and stronger so yeah so that's something that you you kind of have to think about when using them but yeah those those benefits basically yeah they just they they just last longer um and for me that what that does is actually allows you to to learn much more about how the surfboard behaves because ultimately you're able to surf it more so you can take it into various conditions you can you can figure it out and then kind of your understanding of it gets deeper to the point you're then happy to take it out in more surf and it kind of it keeps on rolling rolling on in 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 the life of the surfboard so um but you're right like they they do need looking after you know um um, yeah, you touched on the the venting that we have of them um, because they're hollow. If you take them on a plane, leave them in a hot car, or have them in the tropics, um, then you have to be aware of the the temperature fluctuations, the humidity fluctuations that will happen. Because if you were to seal them up, obviously they're they're like a balloon, so they're going to want to expand and 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 contract, um, dependent on air air pressures and and, and temperatures. So we have to vent them so there's a couple of different options on that you can get kind of Gore-Tex vents one-way valves and things like that but we've just we've found over the years some of them can clog with salt and the, the best thing has always just been having a having a threaded hole that you drop a, a screw into or a bolt into um, when you know or think it might get wet so if you're if you're traveling with it on the top of a car if it's living in your shed and if you're going surfing and taking it to the beach make sure the bung's in and other times where if you know it's going to be in a, in a hot house or in a hot car or you're going on a flight, you just have to make sure it's taken out. Um, and it, yeah, that's just for me, that's just part of caring for a wooden surfboard like they are wood, you know, then they're, they're, they're a, it's a 
Yes, it's a different material to, to foam. Yeah. We have a lot of our, our audience are obviously in the US and um, there's obviously grain surfboards in the US that, that build boards kind of similar yeah. to you guys. Do you, do you have any kind of connection with them or any back and forth with them at all? Uh, we, we, we did in the early days. Like I, I'm, when I was um, at university, I wrote my dissertation on um, environmental surfboards. Um, so they, they came up in that. They were, they were fairly young at the time. Um, and and yeah, they were a huge inspiration. Kind of seeing what seeing what they were doing was like, oh, that you know, that's incredible. Like I'd I'd love to be a part of that somehow. And and seeing then the development of the the wooden surfboard world, you know, it coincided with kind of the demise of Clark Foam and stuff. But um, but yeah, yeah, there are a number of people in the states, and I think you know, ultimately, there's a lot more depth to the to the to the surf world over there. So anything, pretty much anything that's happening in the UK, there's a chance that something similar is happening in the US. So yeah, they're always always a constant inspiration. Um, but since starting the business and trying to trying to run what we do, we've we've only ever tried to look out for ourselves and 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 and, and try to improve ourselves and not focus on other people doing similar things because um, it's very easy to distract yourself and 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 get lost in trying to chase what competitors might be doing because um, it might work for them, it might not work for you. You kind of need to knuckle down and, and and find what works for you and makes you tick. So that's what we do. Beautiful. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. You started off making the boards to order, and now a big proportion of, of Otter Surfboards business is actually not making the boards, but is teaching people to make the boards. And a lot of the guy, you know, the, the, these, these people that you've been mentioning, actually they've not been coming and buying a board from you. They've been coming and building a board with you, yeah. um, which I think is 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 awesome. Um, I think it's really, really cool. I love, I love any opportunity to to learn a new skill. And um, mm. was that always your original concept as as you started to investigate surfboards? I it never. I I didn't have it on my agenda at all. I was very much just kind of heading into almost like the arts and craft world of being a maker um, and and being in my shed just making stuff. Um, and then there was a chap after kind of when was this kind of 2011 ish yeah he he just came to me and he was like look I, you know I, I, I surf loads I love making stuff out of wood can I come and talk to you about your surfboards and I kind of went yeah come on down to the workshop um spent about three hours with him chatting about wooden surfboards um kind of in my head rubbing my hands together thinking yeah he's gonna buy one yeah yeah like so early on you don't you just don't know and um and he said well I love them but what I'd really like to do is make one myself and I'm like ah is where my head goes um but but i kind of said to him look if you if you want me to help you make one if you're happy to um he he happened to work four days a week had wednesdays free um so i said okay let's just book out every wednesday afternoon for 12 weeks over the winter and let's if you're happy to i'll trial various different parts of the process with you in terms of the making to see how I could then piece them together into a week-long course um, essentially taking 10 of those 12 sessions Mm -hmm. and pushing them together Um, and he was happy with that so we we, I kind of it was at the point where the business was young enough that and I was young enough as well that it whilst I wanted it to to work and obviously like the idea was for it to provide me with an income I was kind of like nothing ventured nothing gained like I've got to just give this a go and see how it feels um if this is what he wants maybe other people want it and I well I found that making a board with somebody um 
on, a, on like on a selfish level, I went through the emotions of making the first one again. Like I saw within him the the excitement and that anticipation when you're shaping the rails and like trying to think about how it's going to be in the water and that kind of giddiness that you get. I was able to share in that again, which was really was really uh, really rewarding. But then seeing his sense of achievement as well at the end of the time, like he was able to stand back and go, "I made that," and to be able to give that to someone is is just incredible. Like you, you I I. When I first started, I didn't quite appreciate the impact that can have on people. Um, like now we look back and, and we've had kind of uh, well over 100 people come, th- come through the course and I can, I can give you a number of different, um, different stories of how it's affected people's lives, which is quite incredible to think that five days in a workshop can do that for people. Um, but ultimately it's, it, it becomes, like now we almost see like the surfboard's the hook. Like it's not really about the surfboard, the surfboard can get people in and get them interested, but actually the the the, the time spent, like um, in your own head, the headspace you get from focusing on a task, the connection back to your hands, the conversations that come out of that sp- kind of safe space that we 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 end up providing because we limit the courses to a to a small amount of people, um, all of that combines to a point where it's such a memorable experience for people and they connect back to themselves and what makes them tick on a level that they kind of then question what the hell they're doing with their lives and so that whilst we might be like a catalyst for some of the changes in people's lives it's definitely a, a, been been a really interesting part of the process to be a part of um and like steve that that the, the chap i i talk of about who made that first board he has come back and made a second one because he knew like he could see how the, he kind of watched it watched it evolve and then was like do you know what i i really want to to have to come back and re relive it um and we've had a couple of people do that and that's so lovely that they they see the benefit of just spending time in the workshop um as well as they get a surfboard that then lasts a, life, lasts a lifetime um they've got the memories too so it's yeah it's been it's been quite incredible to see how that's developed very cool and and so like you said you you, you experimented that first not quite workshop but but experimenting with it so what does that process look like now if somebody turns up and they're going to build a board in a week what what does that now look like yeah the five days um yeah because yeah, uh i think the the first thing is we don't really tell people how hard it is um it's it's five long days like it's it's um yeah it, it's it's a tough week and it's tough mentally they're all learning stuff new they're spending days on their feet um and they're they're having to be physical um so that's that's quite i i love that like the end of the week people are like whoo i need a holiday you know um <laughs> but it gives them such a sense of achievement so the five days um they come in on the on the monday morning um we all have a cup of tea and kind of a little bit of you know who's who and tour of the workshop um we glue the the framework and the skins are prepped for them so they glue their framework down onto their bottom skin um, that's kind of the first thing we, we get the framework out we piece it all together and we line it all up we get it like that's kind of one of the most precise bits is laying that all out um, perfectly onto the bottom skin and getting that glued down and um, we've also realized that um, because we live here it's very easy for us to overlook the connection to the ocean um, so actually, we, 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 like, re, more recently, we take them down to the beach on the Monday as well and just kind of we do like a, a quick beach clean after a lunch break or something and just kind of reconnect them to the coast, um, which is a really nice thing, nice thing for us to be able to provide for people. Tuesday, they come in, they start building their rails up. So they start putting the rail strips on. 
Um, and the intention on the Tuesday is just get as many of those on as we can. So it's a fairly repetitive process. Once you get those first three or four on, you start to really know it, know what's going on and people get into a bit of a rhythm and a flow. Wednesday, more, more rail strips go on, nose and tail blocks go in, and we need to prep for the top skin to go on. Um, so that tends to be the longest day because we, we have to get the top on. There's, we don't go home until the top goes on. Um, we've depending on people's skill levels like we we kind of open the workshops to anyone and everyone so we get different skill levels different conversation levels um and and yeah various factors go in to determine how long that day lasts but it has kind of like i think the latest we've ever gone home is 11 at night which is a pretty (laughs) full-on day um but yeah but i see those those days as just all the more rewarding like we typically finish about six or seven but um yeah but if you get a particularly uh for me challenging um, people to teach or just people who who, who uh, find a really good groove to, to talk and connect to people we just let that happen um and then the thursday sorry i'm i'm filling you in with a lot of information here um thursday uh we get into the shaping so we then pick up the hand tools um we've got kind of fairly traditional tools in the workshop here that we get into um a few um more exotic ones like um, a lot of japanese tools that we use get into the shaping. We do the majority of all the rough shaping um, on the deck so that we can really get comfortable with the tools before we get to the critical part of the underside of the rails. And then Friday, we, we attack the underside of the rails and do all of the sanding um, and then stamp it and sign it at the end of the Friday. Do these run every week or is part of your time, you know, making custom boards for people or, you know, how does it run like that? Yeah, so um, yeah, I find after a week I'm done. Like I'm spent, mm-hmm. so um, we run one every five or six weeks, um, right. and yeah, that time in between. So each board has about three days worth of prep that has to be done from our point of view, um, mm-hmm. and we so we run the courses for up to three people, and so that's nine days of prep before each course. Um, and yeah, you're right. Like we've got to make other other custom boards. The other products that we make, we're also making all the time um, with the belly boards and hand planes. And then um, just the running a business, answering emails, you know, mm-hmm. all of that stuff all, all takes, takes up time as well. So um, Podcast interviews. Exactly, all that stuff, yeah. <laughs> and, and so yeah. you yourself uh, have, have done, you know, three days of prep before uh, somebody arrives to build the board. So, so which bits, what, what are you prepping? What are, you, what are people not having to do when they show up that they would have to do if they were going to just get the raw timber and build? Yeah, so we do ultimately we do all the machining. Um, so we we laser cut the the framework for them, so that's that's cut and ready to go. Um, we get the planks in and we we rip them down and we glue them together and we 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 sand them so we make the skins up, um, and then we we make all the rail strips and all the nose and tail blocks ready. Um, so yeah, and that's yeah yeah. I, I'd love to get it quicker than three days, but that's just how long it takes to get everything. Ready. You're doing that because, like you say, that's that stuff where by far and away the most efficient way to do it is do it on a machine, run it through, and it's not necessarily an interesting hands-on job. No, yeah, but it is pretty important to the overall process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um, yeah, it's pretty critical that everything's done accurately on the machines. But like you say, you know, for us, like it's you know in those three days you've probably got nearly a day stood on the bandsaw so it's like it can be fairly monotonous if you're if you're not aware of everything that's going on it can look quite boring but um but it's all completely necessary to to get the end result so i don't know if my insurance would cover me having people on bandsaws (laughs) (laughs) so i i want to roll back to to 
well, two things you were talking about before. You know, when I came down and um, I came with my girlfriend and, and one of my really good friends and, and we built some hand planes. And my mm. friend Sally in particular, uh, the, the thing she was most excited about was, was when you dug out the Japanese pull saws. Um, yeah. and, and that for her, I think, really made the whole day. So, so where did the, the interest, like you said, in using those slightly more exotic tools come from? Yeah, um, they came, so when I was studying the kind of furniture making side of things, I was also doing work as a timber framer, um, and the guy I was working for had these Japanese pool saws, and, and I, was kind of, I was just in, I was intrigued by them to start with, and then when you start using them and feel comfortable with them, you understand how much more efficient and, and, and ultimately better they are at, at cutting than a lot of the Western saws. Um, I'm sure a lot of woodworkers might disagree with me, but I just I just fell in love with them. So um, when yeah, it's really funny when I first kind of had a, had a, my own space that was a workshop. I was I, I just had my toolbox. That's what I had. Um, so when I had people come to, to to use tools, they were using my tools. And to be fair, half the tools on the wall are still ones I'd consider mine. Yeah. You know, my own personal <laughs> ones. Like there's a there's a there's a plane downstairs that I bought myself for my twentieth birthday. You know, like they're and they're all a part of it um but the yeah you're right like those those exotic tools kind of come from just being interested in woodwork and, and understanding what the um what different different stuff there is out there like we've got some japanese chisels and, and the benefits of those do the steel and stuff and i mean like like you kind of geek out on surfboards i geek out on tools as well so um yeah and 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 you're quite right like it's it's interesting to note how memorable those moments can be for people um and actually you know when i hold up the the, the saw and it's like has anyone seen or used what you think i'm a, like a samurai it's a really it's a really um they're beautiful things I don't know, it evoke, it, yeah it, and it evokes a lot of i don't know excitement and emotion within us it's quite it's quite funny um with these workshops um you know you you said they've they've evolved in a lot of ways and it's it's gone from being you know, in, in your head, it's gone from being about building the boards to really about, you know, creating this experience and these memories for, mm. the, for the people that are with mm. you. That's, I mean, that, that's something that I think certainly resonates when I was down with you, you know, that, that, that was, it, we had a really nice day. It was, it was just great mm. hanging out in the workshop, you know, everyone doing their thing. But um, it's, it's one of the things that, we often say, you know, with, with, with the, the coaching resort that we're at here in Costa Rica, you know, is, is that, that actually the, although everybody's coming here to surf, you know, in, in a lot of ways, we're, we're creating an experience that goes beyond just being surf lessons. We have people that leave, mm. leave here as, as good friends and stay in touch and rebook and come down here all the time. Um, and I, I know that you guys have, you actually seem to have gone a long way to, to really foster that um that side of things you know you you bring all all the people that done courses back together again and yeah was that a really deliberate push to try to create that community or did that kind of happen on its own and it's something that you've you've stuck with yeah um it probably the motivation came originally actually kind of very much from a business point of view um as as you guys are, are probably aware actually um those people who have experienced what you do are your best advocates. Um, so for us, it was actually, okay, we've had these people in. They've, they are very, very unlikely to come back and spend another week with us. I guess you're lucky in that people will typically have a holiday most years, if not, if not more often. Um, 
and the experience you provide is always going to be different and, and, and they will want to come back and you're, you're providing the progression opportunity that they will come back and, and be a part of. Whereas for us, um, they'd come back and then make another board. They might not even need another board. So actually, would like who of those is actually going to come back? So is that, it was a case of, okay, how do we keep them engaged and talking about us? But also, um, people may have experienced it on their own because we run them even if there's only one person signs up to workshop we still run them so they don't know anyone who's been through the same experience um and so it was a case of looking at those people and going do you know what we really not like and you and because of what we do and same with you probably you see an awful lot of similarities between the people and also things that um people the differences that that might just happen to gel together so actually by pulling everyone together um it just kind of, for me, it completes the circle on, on, on the whole experience delivery. So what we, uh, what we do for those people um, is we invite them back down to Cornwall for the weekend um, and we, we arrange to go for a surf together um, and then we put on a, a kind of an evening of, of food and entertainment. We, yeah, the idea is we create this environment that isn't just about kind of filling their senses. It's a case of giving them a space to, to connect to each other and, and back with their boards again and, and just kind of give them more and more memories and, and and it also allows us just to reconnect them with those people. Like you say, some of them leave as friends and it's a really good date in the calendar to just get a group of friends together. And we go back to the, the farm where I first started making the boards. So it's, it's kind of got that connection back to where I originally started making the boards. Um, once I'd left university, you know, with kind of chickens and pigs under my feet and, and all of that stuff. There's, the chickens and pigs are, are, are still kicking around, um, but uh, probably not the same. <laughs> But it's just really nice to, to be able to bring everyone back to that and, and, and celebrate it, basically. It gives, I don't know if you guys find it um, from a business point of view, but it's very easy to continue to pursue the next thing um, and to actually stop and reflect and take stock is, is incredibly valuable. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Very cool. Going back to the workshop side of things, we've spoken quite a lot about the surfboards, but as, as I've mentioned already, you know, I came down and I, I made a, a hand plane and I know that the, the hand planes and the belly boards have become a, a big part of what you do in particular, I guess, because the time frame is a lot shorter. Yes, yes. So you're quite right. Like we, we realised that um, not everyone can take five days to, to come and make something. Um, so, OK, what we, we started looking into the offcuts that we get from the surfboard process anyway and how do we best use them. Um, so we'd been making hand planes and belly boards for a good couple of years before we then went, hang on a minute, is there a way we can turn this process into, into like a taster almost for people to come and spend a day or sometimes we run them as kind of like a, a four hour session, um, which are a bit more intense, as you might imagine, um, and, and just get people making stuff um, and, and like you said, you know, the the whole feel of the workshop, like it becomes much more than just making the hand plane. Um, and uh, and yeah, for us, it's just an opportunity to, to, to contact, to reach more people, get them excited about making stuff and, and ultimately being in and, in and around the ocean and, and, and playing and having fun. Um, so, yeah, they're, yeah, they, they've been a, a fairly, I think, a fairly natural progression for us in terms of our offering and, and, and what we do. And are they, are they still now made from the leftover scraps yes yeah because so um when we when we um have the planks out the planks are, that come from the sawmill are all outside the workshop here um when we come to make a surfboard we go outside and, and we get the planks and they they're, they're in length they're from 12 to 13 foot long um that's the length we kind of specify them at 
and the reason being that our surfboards kind of like I said range from kind of five six up to up to nine six typically we've made a few paddle boards and, and bigger boards up around the kind of 10 12 foot range but um, the majority of our boards are around seven foot eight foot and so from every plank we get a bit of an offcut and ultimately we're for the surfboards we're trying to use the best bit of timber so we're looking at the grain patterns any defects in the wood that might cause any structural issues um, and we're trying to get the best bit and then those offcuts are what go into the, the the belly boards and the hand planes you know we kind of look at those offcuts and we go well we can get two hand planes there okay da, 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 they go into hand planes and we can get one belly board out of that bit brilliant and then any other offcuts they go um, we use them on either our wood burner at home or the wood burner that heats the workshop um, you recently made prince charles a belly board Yes, we did. We re- recently made Prince Charles the belly board, um, which was really cool. Um, he, we were in, invited to to be a part of um, a a day that was put on by by the charity service against sewage, which was celebrating. So, the, a couple of years ago, they had a conference that was um, the ocean plastics. Um, I can't remember what they call it, the ocean plastics. Uh, Kind of, com- I think it might just be the Ocean Plastics Conference where he came and 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 saw them and 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 kind of recognised the event as something he wanted to support. So this um, last year they did an Ocean Plastics Solutions Day, which was really focusing on all of the companies and all of the individuals that are making positive change within the world of ocean plastics. Um, and because he was coming down again to celebrate it and kind of tip his hat to it almost, um, Hugo, who runs Surfs Against Sewage, wanted to to kind of mark the occasion in a way so he came to us and said look guys i know you make these beautiful beautiful surfboards beautiful belly boards is there anything we can do we've got six weeks <laughs> what can we do um and we kind of you know we had visions of of uh, of giving prince charles this you know this beautiful like you know single fin that he tucks under his arm and he strolls down the beach with um and thought that's probably not it um <laughs> so we thought actually the, a belly board would would work really well um, for the fact that it's kind of a part of, of of UK kind of seaside culture. It's a really kind of it, it's very iconic. Yeah, it's very iconic. That's that's exactly for, yeah. For, I mean, for for listeners that, that that aren't based in the UK, there hasn't been you know this strong history of surfing. There there, there is a, a history of surfing throughout the UK, but what you found, I, I, you don't find them so much now. But even when I was a kid. If you went to the beach, they were these funny little, again, I, I will post some photographs on, on the show notes, but these funny, they're about, what would you say, James, about 18 inches wide? 12, 12 yeah. 12, and then, and then about three to four foot long, completely flat with a little bit of kick in the nose, and you just would catch white water lying down. I don't even think anyone envisioned people catching unbroken waves with them. Yeah. Um, and there's, I, I've got a picture of my gran riding one in the yeah. 1920s or 1930s or something. Yeah. Um, they, they are such an iconic piece of UK history. Yeah. 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 You're quite right. Um, and uh, yeah, so we thought, well, OK, we love we love woods and, and we kind of know that Prince Charles loves that as well. So we wanted to, um, Matt had the idea to to kind of give Highgrove a call, which is his, his house in, in the um, kind of the middle of England. And uh and see if they had any timber that we might be able to use for a belly board. And it's amazing, like literally a couple of phone calls, Matt, Matt's like, hi, uh, is this um, uh, is this High Grover? I'd really like to speak to someone who might be able to help me. And they're like, um, no, this is Buckingham Palace, but we can put you through. <laughs> it, was just, it was one of those like, what the, like a really trippy moment. But he managed um, to kind of get us a, a visit up to High Grove to speak with the, the park ranger and, and the, the park foreman up there. 
who were more than happy to help us out. So they kind of laid out a load of timber for us. We kind of said what we might be looking for. They lo laid out a load of timber for us. We went up there for the day um, and, and, uh, and spent some time with them talking about, about the, the land that, that they manage um, and, and how involved um, Charles is with, um, with, with all of that and how he's, he loves getting his hands dirty and, and really does have a, have a deep passion of caring for, for the planet. And, um, so it's really nice to be able to get that timber and then, and then we, we brought that back and it became quite a unique circle because this timber, um, some of it was a, one of the iconic trees that he had in his garden that was um, cedar of Lebanon and then there was some brown oak as well. Um, so we made this belly board for him and we ended up presenting it to him um, on this day with Hugo on, on stage. And, um, and I told him that we'd made it out of, his, out of wood from, from, from his gardens. And he said, oh, the things that go on, I don't know about. And it, it was just really funny. But <laughs> I, yeah, he, he just, yeah, it was a really special moment that kind of, yeah, it's definitely one of the more memorable ones from us from, from that point of view, like literally the future king of England. Yeah, just incredible. So it was cool. Did you come up with some clever pun name for the board that you'll then <laughs> mass produce no, no but it sounds like you've got one so you know, <laughs> I, am, I always <laughs> will, always have will, royalty will, puns will, yeah it could be the camilla parker v ball yeah nice <laughs> that's yeah. terrible that work? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where was i going before that <laughs> <Doesn't matter now. laughs> we've already peaked <laughs> um, um I want to talk about some sustainability stuff because I know that's really important to you. So I know mm. although this wasn't like originally a core part of, you know, why Otter Surfboards came to be, but but I know it's become a big thing for you. You've given a, a TED talk previously on mm. the subject of sustainability. You've spoken um, at various different conferences where, where sustainability has been, been one of the core subjects for, for that conference. So mm. where did that interest in sustainability um, come from when, when did that start to become as important to to how you run as as it is now yes it's interesting um yeah that you can you see that it's important because for me that's where it all began um we kind of we've looked at the, at the business and realized there's kind of three elements we talk about on a regular basis so there's the sustainability element there's the the craftsmanship of what we're making and then there's a the lifestyle and typically um we find people and, and, and customers engaged through the lifestyle. They can see the benefit and, and the reason that we do it. Um, then they kind of get the craftsmanship element. They, you know, they, they love how well the, made, the boards are made. And then for them, it's, oh, but they're also sustainable. Like they're, they're one of the most sustainable options out there. That's, that's also brilliant. Whereas for us, we come from the other way. We go, okay, what's the most sustainable way to do this? How do we put the best amount of craftsmanship into it that we can to make it last longer? And they kind of work well together. And then the result is the lifestyle. Um, so yeah, so for me, ever from the, ever since the beginning, the sustainability element's been the, the driving factor. Like I say, I, I love um, woodlands and, and woods and 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 the outdoors. And realistically, like even uh, a lot of timber that is is used on a commercial scale just just isn't sustainable. Um, so it was a case for us of actually we went kind of through different sawmills um, and then found our way back to different foresters who manage land in different ways um, to the point where the chap who we get all of our cedar from now, he does a, a forestry management system called con, um, constant cover, which is where the woodland is completely mixed. And so he can go in and, and kind of 
take out different species of trees as and when he needs them for for commercial from a commercial reasons so he he then mills them and sells them but what that means is that the woodland is inherently a lot healthier and he's able to because he's going in and just picking up sections the the um the soil is much richer because it's still got all the growth going on above it and the and the decay so um he said i think it was it was a couple of years ago now he said in a commercial he's got 600 hectares of woodland he said in a commercial woodland of my size normally people would be planting 12 to 15,000 trees and currently I'm planting two to three thousand trees and hoping in about 10 years to not be planting any because there's this healthy natural regeneration that occurs um so for me it's people who are thinking along that line like he I, I remember um one of the reasons I think I, I love the sustainable element, um, one of them, um, is uh, my granddad was a farmer and there's a there's a phrase he wrote in one of his diaries once which was about being a steward of the land. And um, so it just shows that like, literally looking after the earth is, is like we're just doing it for future generations. That, that's, that's all it's about. Um, because if not, what the hell's the point? So a lot of timber species that are all monocrop and kind of... Um, the way that they kind of they use the land it's it's very different it's not as healthy ultimately um so yeah so for me that kind of that that's where it all starts is with the with the wood and then it's a case of okay you see these trees being felled how do i make something that's worth making gonna last a long time um and and how do i make it to the absolute best of my ability so that then translates into the way we make the surfboards in in questioning every single thing that you do as a as a designer and maker you you are choosing at every point you are choosing how and and how something's done and what's being used in that process um and and so at every point there's a conscious decision of of how to make it more sustainable and and last longer um and yeah and some some of the elements that have actually come out are, are kind of a result you you make something beautiful and and really well made and then people tend to nurture them and care for them more especially if they've had an, in, invested a bit of themselves in the making process it kind of it, it, you know there's this synergy that happens between those two elements that make it last longer again so um yeah for me that's kind of like that's a huge part of of of, of why i kind of get up and do what i do is 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 to try and drive that that message home and um i'm a i, I did do a, a bit of kind of personal digging around and I ultimately realized I had this kind of like one of those moments where you're like caring about the planet is actually the, exactly the same as caring about people because like the planet's fine without us like what we don't need to care about the planet um the planet's fine but other human if we want human life to exist on this planet then we have to care about the planet so actually it's a care for humans as much as it is a care. It's a really, I don't know, it's a really interesting thing in, in my mind to, to come to that realisation. And then, and then actually I really enjoy connecting to people. It's like, oh, actually, I, I just like people. And then to nurture that is the environment's a big part of that. You know, we all live on this planet, so why aren't we looking after it? That's a, that's a really interesting philosophy. So yeah. do you feel that, that, you know, being based in the UK and, and picking wood from a, as local and sustainably as you can, is there a compromise there? Are, are there woods that you wish you could get hold of in the UK that just don't they just don't grow there yeah so um yeah a lot of people assume that there's that we use balsa um and I'm like no no that comes from the tropics I'm not I'm not interested um so yeah you're right like there 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 are other timbers out there that that lend themselves to making wooden circles but yeah I yeah that's an interesting point I think wherever I was in the world it would be a case of starting locally 
um, and, and working out what's there. Um, yeah, I, I, it's really funny that the world of, of woodwork is quite a funny one because like the the more exotic and, and rarer timbers are, are really kind of like celebrated. And I don't get that. I'm like, why? I don't, I, I don't in any way agree with that. It's pretty horrible. But that's me in, in, a, in a world full of people that love it. So yeah, yeah, it's an interesting, because we've also like, we've been invited to kind of go to, to, to other places abroad to, to talk about what we do and, and, and even run courses. And I just get to the point where I'm like, well, if I can't make it out of, if I can't know where the local timber has come from out where you guys are, and you don't have the, the tools for me to do it. Well, I, like you're asking me to fly halfway around the world to talk about sustainability and, and either bring all my wooden tools with me or you're going to give me some unsustainable stuff to work with. Like I, it just hasn't worked. Cause I, I just like, well, that, is completely hypocritical I don't get that like especially because often we're invited to speak to places where English people or English speaking people will go and I'm like they could just speak like we could do this online we could you know this mm. doesn't have to be traveling half around the world to sit under the sun in the tropics where there's lovely waves to do this talk we can do this elsewhere so yeah it's an interesting yeah. one you have to as as a creator and a, and a maker you know you have to think about all of these decisions so I, I you know I'm sure that some of the decisions you've made you know maybe it might increase some of your upfront costs to be as green as possible or it, it, it means that the process takes more time but you know that you're working sustainably um, but are there any where you've gone down that sustainability route and and actually you've discovered inadvertently it's made life a lot easier oh good one um uh, yeah, I, I guess th there are multiple ways we could cut corners. Like I say, how we, we buy the wood in and make skins. Well, the plywood's pretty commercially available, the, the nice flat sheets that we could just cut bits out of. Um, so so by that, I guess, yeah, there's an element where trying to, to use the best material and, and, and everything is, is, is taking us time. I guess in terms of kind of flipping that one on its head, the, the interesting thing from my point of view as well is actually analyzing um, our boards take longer to make. Um, so actually we're having to keep lights on in a workshop longer where there are kind of consumable items that go along with making our surfboards. Like when we're using the resin, we've got gloves on. Um, well, there's not an easy way to, to kind of dispose of those gloves or recycle them or anything so at the minute they're still going in in the bin that goes to landfill so there's there's elements of it that we're kind of like really trying to figure out how on earth we make them more sustainable and, and they're a result of the way we're making the surfboards so um yeah i mean it's it's a constant kind of digging and, and reassessing and, and trying to work out like a, like um me and chris who's who's the guy who helps me in the workshop all the time he we've been talking at, at length about how do you get um glues that don't just come in plastic bottles like all glue just comes in plastic bottles and it's just like ah how do we like we what we do we once we finish with the glue we clean it out and we use them as mixing pots and, and that you know it extends their life so they're not single use as much anymore and the plastic itself can be recycled that's great but can't we buy bigger but like how do we how do we reduce that so that, yeah there's so many angles um, and points at which you you stop and you go hang on a minute why how do we get to the bottom of that and how do we make that better um but ultimately i think it's just down to a big part of it is down to the longevity of the boards and I think that's massively overlooked in the industry um, 
you know, they, surfboards often become fashionable items, and 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 it's it's kind of believed that you you need six surfboards at least to be able to surf every every condition that you're likely to to encounter. And so for me, it's 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 also been a bit of a journey of trying to work out if there was one, maybe two boards you needed ever, what do they look like, and can you make them that then last a lifetime? Um, yeah, so it's it's a it's a really I yeah the sustainability element is something that's like constant tick over in my head and in the workshop here and and always room for improvement. Fantastic stuff. It's very enjoyable to see, you know that that there are so many options and and, and opportunities for us all to make those little differences and you know like you say even if it's just mm. reusing the 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 glue containers you yeah. know it's so interesting yeah. to see how how those little things can play into it. Yeah, I think yeah, it's I I, it's great. I I remember talking to um, Chris Hines about the whole like, ocean blasting, and Chris Hines is a, the guy who started the, this charity, Surfs Against Sewage, um, twenty two, twenty three years ago now, um, about the whole ocean plastics thing because it's obvious, like you you know you've touched on it, it's, it's become huge now as a as a global issue, like it's it's recognised as a as a problem um, finally, but and thankfully, but it's but it's kind of like yeah, but we just need to stop getting it to the ocean like we are we missing a trick here like what's it's really it's so fascinating to kind of um yeah to, to you kind of have to bang the drum when it's there um but yeah you're right like it kind of yeah it, it it almost needs to be a lot more pervasive within people's lives um but we can only do the best we can do you know i'm still going to drive home from work today um you know there's there's so many elements that you you can do to um to make your life less impactful but um we can only do our best and and, and do what's you know reasonable within the lives we live so no very well said one of the nice things now that we've moved into the new resort we've got this nice library big oh, nice. studio room and, and and we've kind of taken advantage of building a big library and you guys are very kindly uh sent a copy of a, a, a of a book over that that yeah i mean it's it's not technically about you guys but it it kind of is about you guys really isn't it yeah, yeah. um yeah how did that it, yeah, how did that weird. book come about um so yeah dan who's who's the author i met him at um at an event called the do lectures uh, in 2015 um i was running some some hand plane workshops with them and he and took a couple of circles along and and he did a talk it was a really special talk it was about a theory called spielzeug um or it's, it's a word it's a german word um, meaning plaything, and it means that um an object that you connect to beyond kind of a reasonable um explanation um for example um a kid that picks a pebble up on the beach and won't let the pebble go like why why does he feel a connection to that pebble what what is it within them that 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 gives that object purpose so he was on this journey of trying to figure this out like how can places have it how can people have it how can some people have it and some people don't how come some people can sense it and some people can't um and he then kind of explored how the biggest purchase in our lives like houses homes are ultimately bought on a feeling um you know that we've got our tick lists of things we try and convince ourselves of what we're looking for in a house but ultimately we walk in and we'll go this is the place I want to live in. Um, so he kind of he was really exploring that idea, um, and he was going to talk to various different makers of things, um, and and kind of like he kind of had the idea of going to Rolls Royce in his own mind, and and th th this idea for him started to really kind of gather momentum, um, and I and we just happened to meet at that at that point, um, and I I really connected it because of someone who makes things. Ultimately, you want people to have a connection to the things you make. 
so you know I was like is there a, if you get if you figure this out let me know it was where I was kind of heading um, and he just said well how about um, I, th- I think it's it's it, you know if you're saying I can look at your surfboards and, and feel a connection to them because there's just something about them that I that I, that I just feel and they are I mean they are very beautiful you know yeah yeah luck yeah, yeah wood is is something where i think we're all drawn to anyway as a, as a material yeah that it's not hard to make a wooden surfboard beautiful um and yeah but he, he kind of saw this 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 opportunity to come and make one and was like oh hang on a minute this allows me to explore the opportunity it does does that feeling come out of making them or is it put in by the maker is it you know he was he, it was it's such a fascinating week because we had him for five days and we were just exploring this thought. You know, he was like, do you think Mandela's bed that he was on in prison has it, has Spielzeug? Do you think, you know, it became this like, what state changes something? What is it? You know, what is it something? Um, and he ultimately came to the point, it's it's almost kind of, it's it's as intangible and undefinable um as like love as a as a process but we all know what it is like we all have an experience with it and we all can understand what it means but we can't say that's it you know there's no one thing that you can kind of um point to that says that's it um and yes yeah, so for him as a as an author and he runs a, a a publishing company over here um a fairly disruptive one which is which is, which is really incredible um yeah he just explored it through the book and because of our our week spent together the book became about his process of making a surfboard and, and what that meant to him and he then drew so many parallels um because it not only did he kind of explore this this theory that he had but it it, it um challenged him in ways he didn't really um consider he'd ever challenge himself like he kind of he came in he was clearly quite really nervous monday morning he comes in he's like james i'm not gonna be able to do this i couldn't put a b&q barbecue together on sunday i was i could he was like there were instructions and there were like three pieces i had to put together i couldn't figure it out um so he was like i don't make things i'm the guy that can't make things so for take to take him then on the journey just meant he went okay i didn't think i could be a very good father i didn't really think i could run a company i could be a successful ceo but i also didn't think i could make things and i proved to myself that i can make things so actually maybe i can be a good ceo maybe i can be a good father and it kind of he just extrapolated it out on his personal experience um and yeah and explored that within the book so it's incredible like there's it's really funny to read it knowing that he's talking about yourself um because he's obviously taken a bit of uh, poetic license in the way he builds me as a character to fit the book and the narrative that he's trying to tell. Um, so that's really quite funny. Um, like people I've met who've read the book before meeting me um, are like, oh, he's going to be a really studious and stoic like guy that doesn't really say very much. And then I just come in with a big hug and they're like, what's going on? I don't get this guy. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Um, so, yeah, that's quite fun. But um but yeah, it's really, really amazing to have, yeah, to have that, to know that the experience of the five days spent with us has had that effect on him and, and that he's been so eloquent in putting it together in the book is, is really lovely. Yeah, cool. James, it's been fascinating talking with you. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to sit down with us. Um, I know the, uh, with the time differences, I'm sure you have uh, <laughs> places to be and things to do. But um, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. No worries. Thank you very much. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.